0: We continue our sermon series on the parables in Luke. This morning, we'll be looking at Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the, the scripture is printed on your sermon guide so that you can follow along. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well done. Two words that you long to hear. Words that you long to hear from maybe your spouse. If you're a child, words that you long to hear from your mom or your dad. Words you long to hear from your boss. Well done. And yet, we all know that when we clamor after the well done from other people, affirmation and approval from others, that it leads to idolatry, that ultimately, if we clamor after it, it leads to a rejecting of Jesus and a running after people, and really what ultimately becomes a false god. And yet, there's an affirmation that we should be clamoring after, and we see it in this parable. That there's an affirmation from from Jesus, from King Jesus, well done, good servant. Or in Matthew 25, a similar parable, well done, good and faithful servant. That we should be clamoring after that. If you're a follower of Christ, those are the words that you would long to hear from Jesus at the end of your life, aren't they? Well done. Or those are the words, or that's the phrase that you would long to hear maybe in your eulogy one day, well done, good and faithful servant. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What what defines a faithful servant of Jesus? First, knowing the times. Knowing the times. Now Now, what about the times or what aspects about the times does a a faithful servant need to know? I believe there's two aspects that this parable points out that are absolutely critical for a servant to know, right? The first one is that we live in the already but not yet. Now, let me explain. Look at verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, You see, Jesus was just about to get to Jerusalem. And they thought that this meant the kingdom was was right at hand. That Jesus was going to get to Jerusalem, set up his earthly throne, do away with the Roman enemies and all of God's enemies, vindicate them, remove suffering, remove sin, remove pain, that the kingdom was coming. And so Jesus had to reset their expectations. And he does so in verse 12 when he introduces this parable. He said, Therefore, because their expectations were way off, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Right? He's setting up what he's about to do that Jesus is going to die, he's going to raise from the dead, he's going to ascend to heaven, he's going to receive a kingdom and then he's gonna return one day a second time to bring his kingdom in full, right? And that the disciples, his followers, you and me, live in this in-between, between the kingdom already coming, that Jesus brought it with his death and resurrection, but that he's coming again to bring it in full, that we live in the already but not yet. Now, what's significant about that? Why do you need to know that? Why do you need to know the already and know the not yet? What's so significant about it? If you don't, if you don't have in your view both the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom, you'll fall into one of two traps, either purposelessness or despair. If, let me explain. If you lose sight of the not yet and all you have in your view is the already of the kingdom, you're gonna quickly fall into despair and lose hope because you're gonna look around you and say, wow, there's a lot of sin, there's a lot of brokenness, look what's happening in our world. I thought the kingdom already came, why? But you're gonna lose hope. Now let me flip it around. If you lose sight of the already and all you have in your view is the not yet of the kingdom, you're gonna lose purpose because you're gonna say, this world's a mess. My life's a mess, and when Jesus returns, he's bringing a new one, and this one's gonna burn up and go away. So does it really matter what I do today? I'm just waiting for him to come, and then what I do today, it just it doesn't matter. You see, the already, but not yet, you need both so that you don't fall into purposelessness or despair. That the already, but not yet, says to you that what you do today actually matters. Because the kingdom has come, and, and you're building it today. But the not yet says, when it doesn't go smoothly, and sin happens, and brokenness happens, and disease happens, you've got the not yet that says, no, but it's coming in full. There's hope, right? You need both. So a servant needs to know the already but not yet. But second, the second aspect of knowing the times is that a servant needs to know a world that is hostile to Jesus. Look at at verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, this is an odd parable Jesus is telling. It actually has historical precedent that there was an event that happened 30 years earlier that the people that were listening were aware of and that really explains why Jesus told this parable. They knew exactly what he was talking about. 30 years earlier, Herod the Great was ruler of the Jews. He died and they appointed a new king. And this king, before he began to rule over the Jews, had to travel to Rome to get appointed as king by Caesar. And so he traveled to Rome. He left his officers behind to take care of the Jews until he returned. He returned. The Jews sent a delegation of 50 people to Rome to protest this new king. They didn't want him to be king. They didn't like him. There's some stuff that had happened. And so they sent this delegation to, 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 to protest, basically, and say, we don't want this man to reign over us. It's like, that's the historical story, only 30 years earlier, that all the Jews were well aware of. And Jesus tells it, though, to explain his own kingship and what's about to happen right, that he was going to to die, rise from the dead, ascend into heaven, receive a kingdom subject to him, but then to return at some later time to bring the kingdom in full. And in that time in between, that people would hate him. And that's the story we see unfold with the disciples, right? They... They have, as Jesus commissions them and sends them out, what we know of now, they had tremendous success, right? The the kingdom expanded. They saw people come to Christ. They saw stuff happening, but guess what else they had? A tremendous amount of hardship. They took their lumps. Hardship and suffering and persecution. You see, the world is hostile to Jesus, and increasingly so. Now, let me explain a distinction here because that may be a, a statement that confuses you or you look out and you don't see it necessarily. The world is not hostile to spirituality. Okay, you, you will not get any pushback of, of someone that gives a shout out to God after the MTV Music Awards or the Grammy Awards or after a football game, right, that gives a shout out to God. Because as long as it's God who is the general deity over all of the major world religions that he's on top of the mountain and all the religions lead to him there's no resistance but you know when you when you mention the word Jesus there's almost a cringe right that the, the exclusivity of Jesus and therefore the god of the bible does does call for resistance and it produces resistance and it produces hostility Now, why does a faithful servant of Jesus need to know this? Why do you have to have this in your view? Because if you don't, you will live with a peacetime mentality rather than a wartime mentality. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 to 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what Paul is saying there, there is a spiritual battle and it's it's waging in our world. And that you as a servant of Jesus, a faithful servant, need to know that and need to understand that there's a spiritual battle waging because if you don't, you will live in a, in a peacetime mentality versus a wartime mentality. You know, three years after or three years into the uh, World War I, the uh, allies and the American forces were, were running up against starvation, because the, the agricultural fields were being destroyed by the war, by World War I. Um, those that worked the fields were being pushed into service. Uh, the, all the transportation roads were cut off, so distribution was cut off. And so in the fall of 1917, the U.S. Food Administration was started. it was started by the president at the time, Woodrow Wilson, and he appointed future president, Herbert Hoover, as uh, the president over this US Food Administration. And it's fascinating to read what happened. The purpose of this Food Administration was to help get food supplies out to the front lines, to troops that were fighting for freedom and that were were starving. And so listen to the account of, of what happens. It was a voluntary program that was started that was built on Americans' compassion and their desire right, to to support the larger war effort. In order to provide US troops and allies with the sustenance required to maintain their strength and vitality, posters urging citizens to reduce their personal consumption of meat, wheat, fats, and sugar were plastered throughout communities. Slogans such as food will win the war compelled people to avoid wasting precious groceries and encouraged them to eat a multitude of fresh fruits and vegetables which were too difficult to transport overseas. Likewise, promotions such as Meatless Tuesdays and Wheatless Wednesdays implored Americans to voluntarily modify their eating habits in order to increase shipments to the valiant soldiers defending our freedom. And on top of that, because this was so um, foreign to people, And to help them figure out how to do this, they set up local food boards that would help families know how to find recipes and things that could help them reduce consumption. And what happened is between 1918 and 1919, food shipments to Europe were more than doubled. And 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 there was a 15% reduction in consumption in the United States. The same thing happened in World War II when automobile factories during World War II ceased making cars. They stopped making cars and opened up all their assembly lines for military production. You see, in in wartime, you spend your money differently. In wartime, you spend your time differently. In wartime, you spend your, your energy differently. And the point is that when a servant of Jesus understands that we're in a spiritual battle, that it's waging, that it should affect the way that we spend our time, the way we spend our money, the way we spend our energy. That brings us to our second point. What defines a faithful servant of Jesus? First, knowing the time. Second, investing your gifts. Look at verse 13. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So, you have this nobleman, he gives each servant a mina, right, which was about uh, three months wages for a laborer. That was the amount of money it was. And he said, go, go do business. And so what do they do? He, the nobleman goes off, and the first two servants, they go and engage in business. Nobleman comes back, what have you got? And what happened? The first servant said, I made 10 minas out of your one. Second said, I made five minas out of your one. There's two critical truths to know about these first two servants and and what we learn from how they invested, what was given to them. First, you have to make the note that they were given the mina. It didn't belong to them, right? The nobleman owned it, he gave it to them, and he still owned it. So they didn't own this mina. It didn't belong to them. But the second, and this is what's so striking, is that they actually, right, go and make more money for this nobleman, not for themselves, right? They took his, his money and they went and increased it, not for themselves, but for the, the nobleman. And this is in stark contrast to the, uh, to the third servant, right? The third servant, what does he do? He takes that mina, he stuffs it in a handkerchief, which means that he didn't spend any time, any energy on increasing the nobleman's money for the nobleman. And we can only assume that after he stuffed it in the handkerchief, what did he do? He spent his time and energy on his own life, right? His own agenda. And so you see this stark contrast. And what we learn here is that you you have been given resources and gifts by God to be invested in the kingdom for the kingdom for God not for yourself. If you've been given the gift of time, how are you investing it in the kingdom? If you're single, you've been given the gift of time in a, in a way that's much different than others. It's, it's actually a very precious gift that God has given to you. How are you using it? Right? Even if you're married without kids, you have a gift of time that others don't have. If you're empty nesters, decades later, You have the gift of time that you hadn't had when your kids are off. And the question is, how are you investing it? How are you spending it? Are you spending it for the kingdom? Are you spending it just on self? If you've been given the gift of children, how are you investing your children in the kingdom? How are you investing your children in the kingdom for the sake of the kingdom? If you've been given a gift of wealth or the gift of wealth, how are you investing your wealth in the kingdom for the kingdom? And then the last example I give here is not an if. If you've been given a spiritual gift, gift, that's not an if. Every follower of Jesus Christ has been given a spiritual gift. If you are here and you know Jesus, God has given you a gift, a specific gift or several gifts that he wants you to use for the kingdom, to invest in the kingdom, to build his glory, not your own. You know, in soccer, there's the, uh, what's called the penalty area or the penalty box. It's that, it's that white line around the goal. It's about 18 yards by 18 yards. We've got some goal, or we at least have one goalie here that knows what I'm talking about. And, and goalies, right, they, they talk with some arrogance about their box, right? Because that is what they protect. And what's interesting about the goalie box is that goalies are given a special gift that nobody else on the field has, and that is that in that box, they can use their hands. And with that comes a big responsibility, and that is to protect the goal. Last line of defense. And so goalies understand that they have a special gift they can use their hands and a special responsibility. In the same way, followers of Christ have a box. They have a zone where you've been given a gift, and that zone is, is defined by it can be uh, where you work, where you play. It can be your neighborhood. In other words, it's the place where you have influence. It's that place where God has placed you within a zone and given you a special gift and therefore responsibility within that to share the gospel with people, to love people, to serve people, to, to expand his kingdom to build his, his glory. But investing your gifts and using your gifts is not always easy. I mean, I'll go back to the goalie analogy, right? Goalies take it on the chin a lot, protecting that box where they've been given, their zone, right? And it's the same way. You, you know this well. If, if you, over a lifetime, have been investing your your gifts that God has given you in a world that's hostile to Jesus. It is not easy. Like the disciples, yeah, you have successes and beautiful stories, but you take lumps. You take it on the chin. And there's hardship. And that's what we see in verses 20 to 23 with the third servant. This is really interesting. What this third servant says to his master, to the nobleman. Right, then. He hid the mina in a handkerchief. The nobleman comes back and says, What'd you do with my, my mina? And he says, He pulls it out of the handkerchief and said, I hid it. Why? Why did he hide it? He said, I was afraid of you. I was afraid of you, and I knew that you were a severe man. I was afraid of you, and you're a harsh man. You collect where you didn't deposit. You reap where you didn't sow. And what is the nobleman's response? Well, then if you thought that, why didn't you take my mina and just put it in the bank? Low-risk investment. Do something to get some interest off of it. You see, the nobleman was calling out this, this servant's excuse. It was an excuse. You see, there's nowhere in this parable that says that the nobleman was a severe, harsh, evil man. The citizens hated him, and we can imagine that this third servant, when he starts, and and maybe he did, maybe he thought about investing that mina. Maybe he thought about, I'm going to go out and engage in business, and I'm going to make the nobleman some money. Maybe he did, and then he realized, wow, as a servant of the nobleman, trying to make money with people who hate the nobleman, this is hard work, (laughs) This is difficult. And so we can only assume that he went, This is so hard, seemingly impossible. I'm not not sacrificing for that, so I'm going to stick it in a handkerchief and I'm going to live my life. He wasn't wasn't willing to do the hard because it is hard. And for those of you that, that have for a lifetime or a season invested your gifts in the kingdom, you know the hard. It's difficult. And yet I'll say this: if your investment of the gifts that God has given you is not costing you something, then it's probably not investment. Now what I mean by that, when I say it costs you something, costs you emotionally, uh, costs you physically, costs you spiritually. If there is no cost to your investment in the kingdom, then it's likely that you've taken the miner that God has given you and you've put it in a handkerchief. And so this brings us to our third point. If investing your gifts is hard, then what's the third thing that defines a faithful servant of Jesus? And that is honoring the king, honoring the king you know this parable if you look at it it's talk, it talks about basically two responses how the servants respond to the nobleman and how the nobleman responds to the servants the first two servants have a different response than the third servants to the nobleman the the nobleman has a different response to the first two servants than the third right this is the, at the core of what it means to be a servant of Jesus is how you respond to him. What's your posture towards him? What's your attitude towards him? How do you carry yourself before him? And you'll notice what the the noble man does in his response to the servants. He gives the first two servants more and he takes away from the third servant. And what Jesus is trying to teach here is that he is a king who both rewards and judges. Now, why is this important? Why do you need to to know this? Let, Let me, let's start with the first two servants. Look at verse 16. I want you to notice the first servant's response to the nobleman after he returns. Verse 16. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. You get a sense here that this servant is not telling the nobleman how much more he made to get some sort of reward. Now, you're gonna see that he gets rewarded. But you get a sense that this, this servant is saying, Lord, look what I did for you. Look, I took your one mina and I made 10. Look at this. It, I think it's the equivalent of what can happen around Christmas time when uh, a little girl opens up a, a, a gift on Christmas from mom and dad or from dad. And the gift is a, a little package of markers and a coloring notebook. And the first thing this little girl does when she gets this gift from dad is she takes the markers and she takes the notebooks and she runs to the table and she starts to color a picture. And she finishes it and she pulls it out and she runs up to dad and says, dad, dad, look what I drew for you. Right? She took the gifts that her dad had given her and then she just drew a picture and gave it back to him. That's what we see here in the first two servants. Lord, look what I did for you. Happiness, pleasure to simply please. Right? That, that's ultimately what Jesus wants. He gives us gifts and we multiply, and we expand with those gifts. Why? Not because we're gonna get something out of it, but because we wanna please Jesus. We just wanna please him. But there is reward. When the noble man returns, right, you look, he rewards the first two servants for their faithfulness. Verse 17, he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little You shall have authority over 10 cities. You see, these first two servants invested the money they had been given in in an atmosphere that was difficult and hard among citizens that hated the man they were serving. No different than where you find yourself. Investing gifts that you have to advance the kingdom in a culture that does not like Jesus, that hates Jesus. It's hard work. And so these first two servants do that and they're rewarded. Now, why do you need a king who rewards? Because a life of ministry, a life of sacrifice, A life of pouring yourself out and your gifts for the sake of the king is hard. It comes with lumps. It comes with hardship. It comes with suffering. It can be emotional, spiritual, physical. You need a king who rewards. September 2nd, 1945, the documents of surrender officially ending World War II uh, were signed by the Japanese and by the Allied forces. And General Douglas MacArthur oversaw the signing of these documents on the USS Missouri. And uh, he was the last, uh, after the Japanese signed, he was the last of kind of the Allied forces to sign. And he did something very unusual. He actually had two of his generals next to him. And after he signed, he had each one of these generals sign as well, why? Because both of these men, both of these generals had suffered intense persecution as prisoners of war. They persevered, and he wanted to honor them by having them share in the victory by signing. You know, Romans eight seventeen says, this side of heaven that you and I will face spiritual battles. And that to those who persevere, he calls you joint heirs. Those who suffer with Christ will also what? Share in his glory. And what we learn about honoring a king who rewards is that you you sow with tears and you reap with joy. That you sow with tears and you reap with joy. But the king who rewards is also the king who judges. And you need both. Why? Well, let's take a look at the third servant. What happens after uh, the nobleman comes back? He, he hides the mina in the handkerchief. What, is, what does the nobleman do? He takes away his mina and gives it to the guy who had 10, the first servant. And Jesus explains what he's doing in verse 26 to 27. He says, I tell you that everyone who has, more will be given but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, this is strong judgment language. The similar parable in Matthew 25 ends with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, strong judgment language. But you need judgment. Why? Why? Because judgment is simply a purging from God's world what doesn't belong. It's a purging from God's world of what doesn't belong. And notice how it's described in verse 26, that there's a taking away. That this this servant, the third servant's mina, was what? Taken away. And what we see a picture there is of common grace. That everyone receives gifts from God, regardless of whether they acknowledge Him or not. That's called common grace. Common grace is what explains someone who lives a successful, comfortable, prosperous life. They've been given gifts to multiply it in the business world, whatever it may be. That's common grace. But for those that don't honor Jesus, for those that reject Jesus when he returns, those gifts are taken away. And I said it probably about a month ago that that's the picture of what eternity apart from God is when all of his common grace is removed, when it's taken away for those that reject Christ. One author puts it this way The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven, the worst of life on earth is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, this present life is the closest they will come to heaven. See, why do you need judgment? Why do you need a king who judges? Because you need a new world, a new heavens and a new earth that is void of sin and void of pain and void of suffering and void of enemies of Christ. Faithful servants know the times They invest their gifts and they honor the king who rewards and judges. There's one author, he shares a story of, uh, really a a meaningful story for him of, and I'll close with this, what he learned about being a faithful servant of Jesus when he was in high school. He was at a summer camp, he was at a Christian camp, and he and some other high schoolers were, were working on this house, Right, it was gonna be the place where some staff came in for the summer to run the camp. And they were, they were digging dirt, they were slinging mud. And he says at one point, you know, his, his shirt is soaked, they're sweating, they're full of dirt. His, his hands had blistered up from the shovel. He was throwing himself a pity party. And he said their leader, which he had a ton of respect for, his name was Hiram, they called him High. And High walked around the corner, saw what they were doing, and he finally said, thank you all for doing this because you're making this house ready for some staff that are gonna be a big help in this camp. And then his leader said something to him. He said, I'll never forget. He said, your shoveling will in the long run be used of the Lord to bring a lot of campers to Jesus. And so instantly, he went from thinking of himself as a sweaty, tired, high school student to an instrument in the hands of God Almighty to build the kingdom. He went from what he he called shoveling mud to realizing that he was building the kingdom. And that's exactly what servants of Jesus do. And all that they're called to do with all their gifts is to serve. And because this is a broken world that's hostile to Jesus, you sow, you invest in tears. But you reap with joy. Let's pray. Father, what a sweet picture you give us of what we have in store after investing for a lifetime in your kingdom which has tremendous joys, but also has tremendous sorrows. And the promise, as we read in Romans 8, that if we share in your sufferings, if we sow and invest with tears, that we will also share in your glory, that we will reap with joy. Father, thank you for this meal this morning that is a little taste of the reward. It's a little taste of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And as we eat and drink, would you, by your Holy Spirit, pour your grace out into our hearts and specifically into those this morning that may feel weary from their service. Specifically for those that maybe have lost their moorings and wondered why they're doing what they're doing. May you pour yourself out through this meal. Strengthen them to remind them that Jesus, you're a king who rewards. And we pray this all in Christ's name, amen.